Hi there, you're listening to Aminder, and today we're kicking off our series covering papers published in December 2021. I'll be telling you about some of the latest research on Alzheimer's disease, particularly on how cognition and behavior are impaired in this disease, and the latest efforts to develop treatments. With every new study, we are one step closer to understanding this disease better and eventually finding a cure. Stay tuned to hear all about it. Welcome to Aminder, a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on Alzheimer's disease for you, so you can spend more time doing awesome research. For every month, you'll find a series of episodes by theme, and each comes with a bibliography. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. Hi, everyone, and thanks for joining me for this episode of Aminder. I'm your host for today, Ellen Kosh, and I'm excited to be back to update you on the latest in the field of Alzheimer's disease research. This is the first episode of our December series, which covers papers published in December of 2021. In this episode each month, we talk about the latest papers that were published on cognitive and behavioral changes in Alzheimer's disease. I also wanted to let you know about some of our other exciting episodes coming up. So coming up later in our December series, we also will have episodes on topics like synaptic transmission, prevention strategies, vascular changes, and tau pathology, and much more. So make sure you come back every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday over the next few weeks to catch these episodes. So Alzheimer's disease, which you'll often hear me shorten to AD throughout this episode, is a multifaceted disease that can lead to a wide range of cognitive, psychiatric, and even sensory problems. Today's bunch of papers span topics such as the olfactory system, emotional processing, language, and future thinking. Then later on in the episode, we're going to end with studies that shed some hope on treating symptoms of this disease in both clinical and preclinical settings. Before we begin, I just wanted to remind you that at Aminder, our aim is to give you a monthly and hopefully unbiased snapshot of the latest publications in the field, and we don't take any deep dive into the papers. The summaries that I provide you with today are largely based on the abstracts found on PubMed. I don't personally assess any of the paper's methodology or results myself, so please don't take anything that I say today as fact until you can check the paper for yourself. You can use our numbered bibliography to find the original paper and get all the info you'll need. You can find this bibliography link, as well as the bibliographies for every single topic and paper that we've covered since we started this podcast back in 2020, in the show notes or on our website at aminder.com. Also, a huge thank you to the sorting team here at Aminder for expertly sorting through hundreds of papers every month to create focused, bite-sized episodes like this one. And I'd like to also give a shout out to our very special sponsor, the CCNA, or Canadian Consortium of Neurodegeneration in Aging, for their financial support of this podcast, which helps us buy the important equipment and software that keeps us running. Without further ado, let's get into today's papers. We have 16 papers, starting with three on sensory function and processing. We'll kick off the show with a study on color vision and the ability to distinguish between different colors in Alzheimer's disease patients. The title is Impaired Color Discrimination in Alzheimer's Disease Dementia. And the first author is Bodecker, last author Topper, who are affiliated with Bielefeld University in Bielefeld, Germany. 
and this was published in the journal Alzheimer's Disease and Associated Disorders. The focus of this study was on finding ways to improve the color and contrast of signage to make these easier for people with dementia to process and understand in the real world. They looked at how well AD patients can discriminate between different color combinations. To do this, they had 36 healthy older adults and 30 AD patients do a computer color perception task. And they looked at how different contrast features affected the accuracy and speed. Both the AD and the controls had better performance speed with positive contrast polarity, meaning when there's a dark target that is on a light background. The AD patients performed worse overall than the controls, but it was observed that they did better with black-white or red-yellow combinations than they did with blue-green combinations. Based on all of this, the authors suggest that positive contrast polarity and color combinations could be optimized to improve sign recognition and reaction times for people with AD. In the next two papers, we look at the sense of smell, also known as olfaction, in the context of Alzheimer's disease and related disorders. Starting with paper number two of the episode, which explores the structural and functional connectivity of regions of the brain related to olfaction. This study comes out of the International Journal of Neuropsychopharmacology with the title, Structural and Functional Abnormalities of Olfactory-Related Regions in Subjective Cognitive Decline, Mild Cognitive Impairment, and Alzheimer's Disease. First author of this one is Chen, and the last author is Ning, and they are affiliated with various um, institutions in Guangzhou, China. These researchers wanted to know how olfactory-related regions of the brain change as individuals progress into Alzheimer's dementia. They had 269 subjects total who either had subjective cognitive decline, mild cognitive impairment, Alzheimer's, or were healthy controls. In this abstract, the authors do not go into their methodology much, but by the sounds of it, they are doing functional MRI to look at a variety of measures of brain structure and function. According to the abstract, the subjective cognitive decline group had reduced gray matter volume in the hippocampus, increased regional homogeneity, a measure of the synchronization of activity of the caudate nucleus, and reduced functional connectivity within the hippocampus and between the hippocampus and parahippocampus. The authors also report a correlation of odor identification dysfunction with reduced hippocampal gray matter volume and increased regional heterogeneity of the caudate nucleus. They also mention relationships between overall cognition and various neuroimaging measures. All in all, it seems that the hippocampus and the caudate nucleus may be important regions in the progression of olfactory dysfunction in Alzheimer's disease. The third paper of today's show compares olfactory function, genetics, and cognition. It is aptly titled, Olfactory Function, Genetic Predisposition, and cognitive performance in Chinese adults. It's published in Current Alzheimer Research by first author Yang and last author Zhang, who are associated with Fudan University in Shanghai, China. This publication explores the link between genetic predisposition to Alzheimer's, olfactory function, and cognitive performance in over 2,000 people in China. This data came from two cohorts. One was the Rugao Longevity and Aging Study with almost 1,500 participants and a mean age of 78. And the other was the Central China Cohort, which had 589 participants and an average age of 48. 
All the participants had blood samples taken, likely for the genetic analysis, olfactory function measured by the Chinese smell identification test, and cognitive performance tested by the mini mental state exam in Chinese. The researchers also looked at five single nucleotide polymorphisms to calculate a genetic risk score. And these were polymorphisms that have been shown to be related to AD in Caucasian populations. Those in the lowest quartile in terms of olfactory function had a higher odds ratio of being cognitively impaired. And this effect was stronger in those with a higher genetic risk for developing AD. They report similar results in both cohorts, though there was a much stronger significance value seen in the central China cohort. That's a very interesting link that they found between olfactory processing and cognition, and I'm sure this will continue to be explored further in future research. If you're interested in the genetic risk factors for AD and how they affect disease pathology, you'll want to check out our monthly bibliographies on this topic, which bring together papers on topics like apolipoprotein E, familial mutations in AD, and new genetic insights into this disease. You can find a link to all of our bibliographies in the show notes or on our website. Let's move on from sensory processing to emotional processing with the fourth paper of today's episode. This one is from first author Perez, last author Salvador, who are both affiliated with the University of Valencia in Spain. Published in the journal Psychophysiology, it's called Deficits in Facial Emotional Valence Processing in Older People with Subjective Memory Complaints, Behavioral and Electrophysiological Evidence. Deficits in Facial Emotional Processing, which is recognizing emotions in other people's facial expressions, have been shown in AD as well as in mild cognitive impairment. These authors asked whether these deficits were also present in people with subjective cognitive complaints, but who didn't show clinical memory deficits. The researchers combined behavioral measurements with EEG of event-related potentials to look at this phenomenon in 41 people with subjective memory complaints and 38 without. They looked at waveforms in the event-related potentials including the N170, which is a negative wave with a peak at about 170 milliseconds following stimulus, and P300, a positive waveform 300 milliseconds following stimulus. Those with memory complaints were less accurate and slower on the test than those without, and men with memory complaints had a longer N170 latency in the recorded event-related potentials. Other EEG measures were not different between the groups. In patients with subjective memory complaints, the authors report a relationship between higher P300 and late positive potential amplitudes and better performance on the test. Check out the paper for all of the details. I think that this is a very interesting study showing a possible deficit in facial emotional processing in those with subjective cognitive decline. Coming up next is a publication from first author Reinhardt's last author Vandenberg from institutions in Leuven, Belgium. They look at the notorious protein amyloid beta, which accumulates in the brains of Alzheimer's disease patients, and they explore the relationship of this protein with language networks of the brain. By the way, if you're interested in reading more about research on amyloid beta in AD, then you guessed it, we have a bibliography each month on that topic. Check out our previous month's bibliographies by finding the link in our show notes or, once again, on our website. Now, getting into paper number five. Changes in the language system as amyloid beta accumulates, 
published in the journal Brain. How does amyloid beta accumulation affect brain areas related to language processing? The researchers of this study were interested in answering this question due to the high prevalence of language impairments in people with AD. They looked at amyloid levels by PET imaging and task-related functional MRI scans of the language network over five or six years. This was done in 35 cognitively intact older adults, about half of which were male and half were female. They go through many results, and I'll just touch on a few key points here. As they expected, the posterior temporal cortex which is highly important for language comprehension, showed prominent changes. As amyloid beta levels increase over time, the MRI functional response amplitude of the right superior temporal sulcus increased during the associative semantic versus the visuoperceptual tasks, and they found that amyloid accumulation was related to decreased response amplitude of the left inferior frontal sulcus and the right dorsomedial prefrontal cortex. They also measured tau load in some participants cross-sectionally, but they didn't find any association between this and the functional MRI measures. So based on their findings, amyloid beta seems to be contributing to dysfunctional brain circuitry related to language comprehension, even before Alzheimer's disease symptoms are seen. Now let's talk about future thinking, or thinking about the future, a cognitive skill that can be affected in Alzheimer's disease. Paper 6, published in Current Alzheimer's Research, takes a closer look at this cognitive impairment. The paper is called Reduce Contextual Information During Future Thinking in Alzheimer's Disease. First author is El Haj, and last author is Antoine, and they are affiliated with institutions across France. Within the concept of future thinking, these authors particularly were interested in contextual information, or three of the W's. When, where, and who. They asked patients and controls to imagine future scenarios, and they counted the number of when, where, and who details that the participants produced. Compared to the controls, the AD patients told fewer details for all three types of information. And the authors report a correlation between when information and general cognition, which was assessed with the mini mental state exam. There wasn't any information in this abstract as far as the number of participants go or any other demographics, so make sure to check the paper out for yourself to find those details if you're interested in this work. For the next three papers of the episode, we're switching gears to animal models and some of the latest preclinical work. This includes one paper on how preferences can affect object recognition tasks in mice and two on potential therapeutic options in animal models. We'll start with paper 7, which comes from first and last authors Tropia and Puzo out of University of Catania and OC Research Institute in Italy. Published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease, the title of this paper is Innate Preferences Affect Results of Object Recognition Task in Wild-Type and Alzheimer's Disease Mouse Models. If you do rodent research, then you've probably heard of the Object Recognition Task. A test of memory in which animals are exposed to novel and familiar objects, and this is a task that is used in AD models commonly. The expectation is that an animal with intact memory would spend more time at a new object rather than one that they've been exposed to before, and that any deviation from this would reflect a memory impairment. But is that all that's really at play here? These authors suspected that the mouse's innate preferences might affect which object they explore as well. 
Using males and females of the genetic AD model 3XTG, they looked at how the material, size, and shape of objects affected exploration, and then whether this affected performance in the object recognition task. Shiny materials seemed to be especially exciting to the mice, as mice explored these the most. Male mice also preferred larger objects. Regardless of whether a shiny object, like metal, was new or not, they found that wild-type and AD mice spent more time exploring it, and they found similar confounding effects of large objects, such as a large cube. So this paper really sheds light on how natural biases are important to keep in mind when designing experiments and interpreting results. Now we have a study published in Behavioral Pharmacology by first author Ostevan, last author Musavi, out of Shiraz University of Medical Sciences in Iran. They explore the use of a natural compound, agmatine, which is a polyamine derived from the amino acid arginine. And they explore this compound's use in behavior and hippocampal signaling in mice. Paper number eight is The Effects of Subchronic Agmatine on Passive Avoidance Memory, Anxiety-Like Behavior, and Hippocampal AKT-GSK3-beta in Mice. For their experiments, the researchers used NMRI mice, an outbred mouse strain. They gave these mice agmatine intraperitoneally at various doses every day for 10 days. Agmatine was actually detrimental to memory at lower doses, shown by performance on a passive avoidance memory task. However, at high doses, agmatine improved memory in these mice. They also found changes to the AKT-GSK3-beta signaling pathway in the hippocampus, determined by Western blot, in these mice with the higher doses. This is a pathway that has been suggested to play a role in AD pathology. This study suggests that this compound could be helpful in AD, but more studies, both preclinically and clinically, would be needed to further explore this option. You may have heard of the gut-brain axis, and new research out there suggesting a role of the gut microbiota in brain health. This next one looks at the effects of probiotic treatment on a fruit fly model of AD. Here we have paper number 9, titled Probiotic Releasing Angiotensin 1-7 in a Drosophila Model of Alzheimer's Disease Produces Sex-Specific Effects on Cognitive Function. This one is published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease by first author Smith, last author Jumbo Lucioni, and they're affiliated with the University of Alabama Birmingham, USA. These researchers were interested in using the hormone angiotensin as a treatment for AD because of its negative correlation with AD severity. They had the idea of using probiotics that could be taken orally to help deliver this treatment more effectively. In a Drosophila, or fruit fly, AD model, they delivered an oral supplement of a modified probiotic that would release angiotensin. The flies in the study either received the probiotic alone, the probiotic-releasing angiotensin, or sucrose for two weeks. The authors found that memory was improved in AD male flies, but actually worsened in AD females that received the supplement. The authors think that this might be because of differences in angiotensin peptides that are sex-specific, and the role of various pathways. They also think that optimizing the dosage in females might show a different effect. I think this study does a great job at showing us how crucial it is to test drugs on both males and females. 
Some drugs that work in males don't necessarily do the same thing in females, and in this case, it actually made their memory even worse, which is very important to know. And that's it for our first nine papers of the episode. When we're back, I have seven papers for you that look at comparing cognition and behavior between different types of dementia and clinical testing of new therapies for AD. Stay tuned. Hey, listeners. I'm here to let you know Aminder is recruiting. If you're interested in joining us, shoot us an email at aminderpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Nearly 1 million older Canadians live with a form of dementia. This number is expected to double within 10 years. And sadly, no solutions exist yet to dramatically reduce these numbers. It has to stop. Research can help solve this problem. We are 350 researchers fully dedicated towards preventing and finding a cure to dementia and to improve care to those living with dementia. We are the Canadian Consortium on Neurodegeneration in Aging. The solution to dementia could be closer than you think. Let's continue on with four papers that take a closer look at cognitive decline and neuropsychiatric symptoms in people with AD and other dementias. Paper 10 compares cognitive decline in people with autosomal dominant Alzheimer's disease, an early onset form of the disease that usually affects people under 65 years of age, and late onset AD, or the more typical manifestation that you see with AD. This is published in Alzheimer's Dementia by first author Buckles and last author Morris, and the authors are part of the Dominantly Inherited Alzheimer's Network. The long author list is affiliated with locations across the U.S., Argentina, and Germany. This paper is called Different Rates of Cognitive Decline in Autosomal Dominant and Late-Onset Alzheimer Disease. In this study, this group compared cognitive trajectories of people who were mutation carriers for autosomal dominant AD and late-onset AD individuals who were confirmed at autopsy. They had over 300 subjects with autosomal dominant AD and about half as many for the late-onset disease. The late-onset individuals were shown to decline more quickly during pre-symptomatic periods, and at symptom onset, they performed worse compared to the autosomal dominant patients. But the autosomal dominant patients declined more quickly after symptom onset compared to the late onset group. The abstract doesn't go into any detail on the cognitive tests used, so you'll want to check out the full paper to get all of that important info. Authors Falgas and Walsh bring you paper 11 of the episode, published in the European Journal of Neurology. This study also compares early and late onset AD, but this time they look at a set of neuropsychiatric symptoms. The authors are affiliated with the University of California, San Francisco, and the Hospital Clinic de Barcelona. We have the paper, The Severity of Neuropsychiatric Symptoms is Higher in Early Onset than Late Onset Alzheimer's Disease. Previous studies comparing neuropsychiatric symptoms between early and late onset AD did not use biomarkers to diagnose their cohorts. So these authors investigated the neuropsychiatric symptoms in individuals who were confirmed to have either of these disorders by biomarkers or by postmortem pathology. In 135 early onset and 84 late onset participants from University of California, San Francisco, the researchers looked at scores at baseline and follow-up on the neuropsychiatric inventory questionnaire. I'll be referring to this test as the NPI from now on. 
They used regression models to adjust scores by cognitive and functional status. Make sure to check out the paper for the statistical details that I won't be getting into here. In summary, they found that early onset individuals had higher NPI scores, meaning more severe symptoms than the late onset group. In particular, early onset showed higher scores in categories like anxiety, motor disturbances, and nighttime behaviors across the disease course. The authors also report that co-pathology with argeophilic grain disease, another neurodegenerative disease that is characterized by tau protein pathology, was associated with higher severity in the NPI scores. The authors suggest that vulnerability of subcortical areas could explain the differences between the two groups seen in their study. Paper number 12 is a little bit different than the other papers covered today. It's on the topic of redundancy in the brain subnetworks and how this may afford resilience in diseases like Alzheimer's. The first author is Ganbar and last author Zhang, affiliated with the University of North Carolina, US. Published in the journal Neuroimage Clinical, we have the paper, Alterations of Dynamic Redundancy of Functional Brain Subnetworks in Alzheimer's Disease and Major Depression Disorders. The authors of this study hypothesize that higher redundancy can make the brain more resilient to disorders such as AD and major depressive disorder. The abstract doesn't go into detail on their methodology or any information about the participants, so please consult the paper for that information. They state that compared to controls, patients with AD and mild cognitive impairment had higher dynamic redundancy of the subcortical cerebellum subnetwork and its connections to higher order networks. This higher redundancy may act as a protective mechanism for the brain, according to the authors. They also found some differences in the connections between frontal networks in the brains of patients with major depressive disorder. Altogether, the authors think their findings could shed light on the shared neural networks between Alzheimer's disease and major depression. Paper 13 explores a naturalistic story task that may be able to parse out various cognitive and neuroimaging biomarkers of different neurodegenerative diseases. First author Burba and last author Garcia bring you this article published in Cerebral Cortex. It's a collaboration between institutions across Argentina, Colombia, USA, Chile, Ireland, and Spain. Wow, that's a lot of countries. The title is Multimodal Neurocognitive Markers of Naturalistic Discourse Typify Diverse Neurodegenerative Diseases. This study compared patients with Parkinson's disease, behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia, and Alzheimer's disease in their ability to comprehend naturalistic stories, and they looked at how this related to functional connectivity in the brain. They particularly zoned in on participants' ability to understand action, non-action, social, and non-social events, compared with healthy controls. The abstract goes into the results for each neurodegenerative disease, but I'm going to focus on the AD results for the purpose of this podcast. AD patients were the only group that shared impairments in all of the stories, and this coincided with widespread atrophy in the brain and increased occipitotemporal connectivity shown by EEG recordings. The authors believe that their naturalistic story task can reveal disease-specific signatures, as highlighted in the differences they found in each of the three neurodegenerative diseases in this study. We've reached the final three papers of the day, which are some of the latest clinical studies into treatments for AD in actual AD patients. You'll hear about ginkgo biloba, theracurmin, and benzodiazepines 
and hopefully I pronounced all of those correctly. Let's start with paper number 14. Before we get into this one, it's important for me to point out that there are multiple conflicts of interest associated with the authors of this study. This one is published by just two authors, Loft and Hoer, who are affiliated with institutions in Germany. The title of paper 14 is EGB761 does not affect blood coagulation and bleeding time in patients with probable Alzheimer's dementia, secondary analysis of a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial. And this is published in the journal Healthcare Basel. Ginkgo biloba, which you may have heard of, is a herbal compound that has traditionally been used as a cognitive enhancer, though scientific evidence of its effectiveness is weak at best. This study looked at the effects of ginkgo on blood coagulation and platelet function because of reports that bleeding occurred in people who took this extract. Just over 500 participants were in this trial, and they were divided into three groups, two of which took different doses of the author's ginkgo compound, called EGB761, and one placebo control group. They took various measures of blood coagulation and platelet function at three time points baseline, six weeks after consumption, and 26 weeks after. Overall, the authors report no adverse changes to coagulation parameters, bleeding time, or bleeding-related adverse events between the groups. Some participants also reported taking acetyl salicylic acid or warfarin during the study, and the authors state that no interactions were found between their herbal compound and these drugs. Paper 15 is next, which looks at another supplement, Theracurmin, which is derived from turmeric. The authors are first author Dost and last author Isiki from institutions in Turkey, and this is published in the journal Current Alzheimer's Research. The title is Theracurmin Supplementation May Be a Therapeutic Option for Older Patients with Alzheimer's Disease, a six-month retrospective follow-up study. The participants of this study had either mild cognitive impairment or Alzheimer's disease, and there were 93 total. At baseline and after six months of treatment, the patients had various cognitive and activities of daily living tests. The authors state that 19 patients with AD and 17 with MCI had a 180 milligram dose of theracurmin per day. They don't mention a placebo treatment or a healthy control group in this study. The researchers show that scores on the mini mental state exam the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, and the instrumental activities of daily living got worse over the six months of the study in the 80 patients not treated with the supplement, but remained the same in the patients who took the supplement. Based on this, it seems that this supplement could help in preventing the progression of AD symptoms. But since this study may not have used the placebo or control group, I would want to see more studies with those experimental groups included as well. Our last paper of the day looks at the use of benzodiazepines and how this relates to hippocampal volume and amyloid beta levels in the brain. The title of this one, which comes from various institutions across France, is Benzodiazepine Use and Neuroimaging Markers of Alzheimer's Disease in Non-Demented Older Individuals, an MRI and 18F Florbetapir PET study in the Memento cohort. The first author is Galette, last author is Desmit, and the authors are part of the Memento study group, and this paper is published in the journal Neuropsychopharmacology. 
Benzodiazepines are commonly prescribed to treat insomnia, anxiety, and other symptoms, and they act on GABA-A receptors in the brain. The researchers wanted to see how use of this drug correlates with hippocampal volume because previous work had shown that this drug was correlated with lower amyloid beta load. Could this drug be protective against various features of AD pathology? Their subjects were from the Memento cohort, which were non-demented at baseline and suffered from minor cognitive complaints or impairments. The authors looked at brain amyloid load and hippocampal volume in PET and MRI scans that were obtained from this cohort, and they compared between chronic users and non-users of benzodiazepines. They mentioned many differences between different groups within the cohort, but I'll just get to the punchline here. Hippocampal volume was larger in the users of benzodiazepines compared to non-users, meaning that this drug may be a protective factor in hippocampal degeneration in AD. This is such a promising result, but more causal studies are needed to really confirm that this drug is causing the differences seen here. It does implicate GABAergic signaling as a potential target in AD prevention and treatment as well. I'm really looking forward to hearing where this research goes in the future. And we did it. We reached the end of the episode for today. As I've reminded you a few times throughout the episode, if any of the papers you heard about today caught your interest, make sure to follow up with our bibliography, find the link in the episode notes, or on our website, aminder.com. And we have bibliographies for other hot topics in the field, like amyloid beta pathology, brain imaging, and genetic risk factors for AD. We have all these topics for most months going back to 2020, So if you're writing a paper, or you're preparing your thesis, or you just want to catch up on the latest literature, our bibliographies can be a great resource for you to jump into the wonderful world of AD research. The links for all of our bibliographies can be found on our website or in the show notes. I can't recommend the bibliographies to you enough. They're such a great resource, and I'm really proud of our team for putting them out each month. If you haven't checked them out yet, definitely do so. Also, if you have five seconds to spare, could you rate and subscribe to us on the podcast app of your choice? It would mean the world to us as it helps us to reach a larger listener base and spread the word to more researchers out there who could benefit from the show. Better yet, if you have three minutes to leave us a review, that would really help us out. If the app that you're currently using doesn't allow reviews, Apple Podcasts or iTunes does. So you can leave us a review there as well. And it's so appreciated. So thank you so much in advance. Today's show was a team effort from an amazing group of volunteers. Firstly, I'd like to thank our sorting team, led by Jacques Ferreira, and specifically for this episode, I'd like to thank Nyla Kuhlman for reviewing my script, Anusha Kamesh for reviewing my edited episode, Anjana Rajendran for creating the bibliography, and Sarah Luedi for making the word cloud. The music that you hear is by the talented Anusha Kamesh, who is also our editing manager and a fellow host here at Aminder. You can find more of her work on her YouTube channel, AK Music, or on SoundCloud under her name. And by the way, she and another Aminder host, Nyla Kuhlman, recently competed in the Dance Your PhD competition and created a really beautiful music video, so I highly recommend you check it out. You'll recognize the song right away if you've been listening to our podcast. I'd also like to give a shout out to our sponsor, the CCNA, for helping us financially support the podcast. And I've saved the best for last. Thank you, listener, for tuning into this episode of Aminder. I hope that you found this podcast useful and accessible and look forward to talking to you again soon.